Listeners of the Bitch Media Podcast care about society and our future. And so does Oregon State University. Today's workplace requires employees who think creatively and dig for the unique insights that drive change. Explore your passion with the skills that allow you to be a leader in political science. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash political. Upper and lower level seats, guys. Cheaper in the box office. I got them undercover. Won't get rained on. Anyone need tickets, guys? On a super muggy summer day, I join the crowd of people swarming toward Portland's soccer stadium. An afternoon thunderstorm didn't dissuade the thousands of people who were decked out in red and black scarves and hats and t-shirts from lining up outside, eager to get their seats. In the United States, this was a relatively rare sight. Not the fact that people were braving the element to attend a sports game, but the kind of game they were attending. All of these people were turning out to watch women's soccer. 16,942 people, to be exact, bought tickets to this Portland Thorns versus Kansas City match, and they were dang proud of it. Before the match, volunteers handed out sheets of paper bearing the fans' official songs. The fans group is called the Rose City Riveters, like Rosie the Riveter, get it? As the crowd settled into their seats, a live band and energetic superfans called Capos led the arena in a sing-along that I am sure sounded pretty intimidating to the rival team. the women's soccer team plays on the same field as the men's team, which is called the Timbers. And the women's team, the Thorns, is a really good team. They're currently ranked number one out of the National Women's Soccer League's 10 teams. The Timbers have been around for longer and draw more fans, even though they're not as highly ranked, sixth in the men's 10-team Western Conference. But there's one big, unavoidable difference between the teams. The men are paid a lot more. That's right, I'm at this soccer game not to eat hot dogs and cheer on the team and sing heartwarming songs, but to talk about the wage gap. Sports tie into our identity, our history, and our culture in really important ways. Why do 16,000 people turn up for a soccer game on a rainy afternoon? Because the team means something. Why do people get joyous when their team wins and crushed when they lose? Because the game is more than just a game. It connects to their personal identity in some important way. We see the performance of national identity in all the spectacle around the Olympics. We hold up athletes as national heroes, not just because they're good at throwing a ball into a hoop or doing a specific kind of twirl while also wearing ice skates, but because their skills represent values, determination, bravery, and all that stuff. On a smaller scale, our own performance as athletes is supposed to say something deep about who we are. You know, are you fair? Are you a hard worker? A good teammate? A sore loser? A greedy ball hog? So sports are a performance of our values. But then that's at odds with the main driving force that shapes sports all the way from the high school level to the Olympics. Money. While they represent our purest values, 
liberté, fraternité, égalité, etc., etc., modern sports are built around a single framework, capitalism. That tension is what we're talking about on today's show, which is all about the intersection of sports and capitalism. We have an interview with a historian who explored the history of capitalism and the Olympics, and a discussion with author Jessica Luther about the role money plays in college football and the handling of sexual assault. But first, let's get back to the soccer pitch. Across all kinds of professional sports, women are usually paid less than men, and soccer is no exception. In the National Women's Soccer League, the minimum salary for a player is $7,000. The minimum for a men's player is $60,000. The maximum salary for women in the National Women's Soccer League is $39,000. The maximum salary for men is $3 million. This inequality stems from all sorts of reasons that you can easily guess. The men's team sell more tickets, they have more sponsors, they've been around longer, there's bigger hype around them, they have different union negotiations, they get more airtime on TV, systemic sexism as women in all industries face a wage gap. But one group of soccer players recently asked a big question. Hey, if we had just as big of an audience as the men's team and actually performed better, shouldn't we get paid the same, at least? Take it away, CBS Evening News. Today, five of America's top athletes filed a federal complaint charging that soccer pays women a pittance to win world championships while it pays big to the men who lose them. Here's Jim Axelrod. Again, the flick from John Stein, loose. When the U.S. women's soccer team won the World Cup last year, they drew the highest TV ratings for any soccer game in American history men or women. They also got a nice parade and a bonus from the U.S. Soccer Federation of $75,000 for each player, according to the filing. Compare that to the men's team. If they won a World Cup, they'd get more than $390,000 as a first place bonus. This spring, five players of the U.S. women's national team, that's the team that plays in the World Cup and in the Olympics, filed a federal complaint saying that their paid showed pure discrimination. Sports Illustrated reports that in 2017, the women's team is projected to bring in a profit of $5.2 million after all the costs and everything, while the men's team is likely to lose $1 million. But when you add up all the bonuses and salaries and stuff, the average player on the women's team makes 40% less than the average men's player. Here's soccer star Hope Solo, who was one of the five people who filed the complaint, explaining her motivations on the Today Show. You know, Matt, I've been on this team now for a decade and a half, and I've been through numerous CBA negotiations, and honestly, not much has changed. We continue to be told we should be grateful just to have the opportunity to play professional soccer and to get paid for doing it. And in this day and age, you know, it's about equality. It's about equal rights. It's about equal pay, and we're pushing for that. And The group that runs the two national soccer teams, it's called U.S. Soccer, has come back saying, hey, your union negotiated this contract, you signed off on it, so don't come after us now. They also say that it's unfair to, quote, cherry-pick the profit and loss info from this past year because the Women's World Cup win was exceptional, and that doesn't come along very often. But now, as the Olympics looms and the women will once again be playing on an international stage, they're not backing down. At a Chicago match against South Africa's national team this July, the team wore shirts saying equal play, equal pay 
and spoke out in media outlets, asking for the same financial compensation, playing conditions, and travel arrangements as their male counterparts. In one video, fans also pushed for equal play, equal pay. Every single day we sacrifice just as much as the men. We work just as much. We endure just as much physically and emotionally. The pay disparity between the men and women is, is just too large, and, and now it's our job to, to keep on fighting. Equal play, equal pay. Equal pay for equal play. Equal play, equal pay. The equal play, equal pay message seems to be getting some traction. So will the Olympics give the soccer team the high-profile platform they need to actually push for change? We'll see. Meanwhile, back at the Thorns game, I was busy bothering soccer fans for their opinions on the wage gap. So let me find a Thorns patch. Where do I have? This guy, 45-year-old Travis Diskin, was wearing an old jacket covered in really cool-looking embroidered patches. With such a colorful array, I had to ask what the patches were all about and each patch represented some aspect of soccer fandom. Um, this patch here is a, a melding of the Cascadia tree for the timbers, and then the rose and uh, sunburst for the thorns, showing that uh, there's people who supports both groups here. I asked Travis about his thoughts on soccer's wage gap. The, the women's national, U.S. women's national team is you know, the, some of the best players in the world, and the U.S. women perform better than most other nations, so they should be paid at least equally what what the U.S. men's team are. And they're a poorer performing team than other teams internationally. People like Travis have been watching soccer for a long time, but I wondered what the younger generation thinks about the wage gap. Is it even on their radar? So I walked up to a group of three 18-year-old girls who had just graduated from high school. Hi, I'm talking to soccer fans for a radio show. Could I interview you guys really quickly? Okay, great. These girls definitely already knew about soccer's wage gap, and they had lots of thoughts on why women were paid less. I think that it probably has to do with the hype that surrounds men's sports, and especially men's soccer, as opposed to women's soccer, because people don't really think of women's as being um, exciting or getting the crowds. And that's probably true. It doesn't get as much profit as men's. So I can see the reasoning for why men would be paid more, but I, I don't think it's really fair because they're doing the same work and because women bring home such big titles as well that I really don't think it's fair. Also with um, how the trend is always been going on with men being paid more, it kind of makes sense that that's what's going on with the sports as well. But since we're all girls, it, we um, strongly oppose that and we feel that they should be paid at least equal, especially with how successful both of them are, they should be both rewarded the same. I have to wonder, since sports reflect our values, what values do the unequal pay in women's soccer reflect to these 18-year-olds? What does the fact that their favorite players have to fight for equal pay tell them, loud and clear, about their own future job prospects and what awaits them in the workforce as adults? It's not a rosy picture, but it's an honest one.
Boykov is a political professor. He does a lot of research on activism, and he spent the last seven years exploring something really interesting, the connection between sports and political dissent. He just published a book about the Olympics that is not like any book about the Olympics that I've ever read. It's called Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Okay, so actually, to be honest, is the only book about the Olympics I've ever read because until talking to Jules, I didn't really care about the Olympics beyond, you know, watching the awesomeness that is ribbon dancing. Well, it's got continuous movement. It's lively. It's fast paced. Why should somebody who doesn't care about sports care about the Olympics? What is interesting about the Olympics to you? Well, beyond sport, I think it's important to consider the Olympics because they've turned into this monstrous juggernaut that sort of rolls around the globe. And when this juggernaut flies into the Olympic host stadium, it creates all sorts of social ripples that affect everyday people in the Olympic city. So if you care about capitalism, you should care about the Olympics. If you care about local politics and fairness and justice, you should care about the Olympics. If you're interested in activist groups, you should care about the Olympics. If you care about feminism, you should definitely care about the Olympics. If you care about workers' rights, you should think about the athletes as workers, and you would think then about the Olympics. Okay, so years before he was someone who talked to students about Marxism, Jules was a Midwestern sports fan. Well, I grew up in Wisconsin where I was an avid sports fan and I followed the Olympics really carefully, especially winter sports. And in fact, I loved Eric Hyden, the speed skater. He went to the same high school that I went to. I had my little rainbow cap just like him. I'd go watch hockey. The Miracle on Ice from 1980 was a big part of my life and growing up. As a teenager, Jules fell in love with playing soccer. He got really good, too, and wound up snagging a spot on the U.S. Olympic soccer team. He didn't wind up playing in the Olympics, but he did get to travel around the world playing soccer matches. And on those matches against rival nations, something interesting happened. I guess I kind of had a little bit of a political awakening through that experience in the sense that I was playing in a tournament in France against Brazil, and it felt like every single person in that stadium was rooting against us. And at first I thought, oh, of course they're rooting against us because we're playing against Brazil, and Brazil's awesome, and I would cheer for them too. But then we went on and we played Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia... didn't matter who our opponent was. So in my admittedly slow, naive 19-year-old mind at that time, a seed was planted that there was a whole lot more going on than just what was happening on the field, and that there were wider dynamics that informed why people would cheer for one team and maybe even against another team. During his downtime between games, Jules started doing a lot of reading about politics, economics, and history. I think I tried to start answering the questions that were raised in France about why would somebody cheer against the United States. So I guess that kind of leads us all down the path to today. Decades later, he's still trying to answer those questions. His book, Power Games, explores how the Olympics illuminates some harsh truths about capitalism. Jules sees the Olympics as an example of what he calls celebration capitalism. 
During the Olympics and leading up to it, the normal rules of politics are temporarily suspended in the name of a media-trumpeted, hyper-commercial spectacle, all safeguarded by beefed-up security forces responsible for preventing terrorism, corralling public dissent, and protecting the festivities. Celebration capitalism, he writes, is an upbeat shakedown, trickle-up economics with wrenching human costs. Damn. So just break that idea down for us a little bit more, because the story that's told about the Olympics is that hosting the Olympics is great for the host city. It's great for everybody involved. And it's really a celebration of human achievement and what humans can band together to do. So how do you see the Olympics as something that's not that, as something that's exploitative at its core? Mm -hmm. Well, for a long time, people who wanted to host the Olympics could roll out those vague promises about an uptick in jobs, the economic boat would be floated by the Olympics, and all these sort of things. But through time, independent economists and historians and people involved in politics have shown that that's just simply not true. The numbers don't bear that out. And if you want evidence of that, turn no further than Mitt Romney, Republican nominee for the presidency a few years back, who said when Boston was being presented with the idea of hosting the Olympics, he said, the Olympics are really not a money-making opportunity. And I think Mitt Romney saying that, this is the guy who rescued the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. So he has an affinity for the games. He's a Republican. He's conservative. And when Mitt Romney says that, it really shows how far the way we talked about the Olympics has changed. During the period of celebration capitalism leading up to the Olympics, it's a time when the public is so caught up in the spectacle and pride of an event that public officials and moneyed business people can get support for projects that otherwise would inspire a huge backlash. To understand exactly what that means, we have to unpack it a little bit. Okay, so you know Naomi Klein? She wrote this terrific book called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. And in that book, Naomi Klein talks about how in moments of social peril, whether it be a terrorist attack or war, severe economic downturn, that neoliberal capitalists swoop in and say, we have the solutions to your troubles in this moment of exception, and we will give you neoliberal policies, which is to say, privatize everything with a pulse, get rid of all regulations, and push forth the mantra that we should let the market decide. Disaster capitalism. We saw this after 9-11 with the passage of the Patriot Act that stripped away a lot of our privacy rights and paved the way for imprisoning people without trial. We saw it after Hurricane Katrina when schools were privatized en masse in New Orleans. Let's just let Naomi Klein explain it. You know, I realize, I don't think it sounds conspiratorial. I think it sounds obvious, right? I'm, in fact, embarrassed to be pointing this out because it's such an obvious point. But it amazes me that people don't talk about it all the time that Dick Cheney was in the business of privatizing the U.S. military before he went into office, that Donald Rumsfeld was in the business of profiting from pandemics before he went into office. So these are all people who see profit directly from terrorism, natural disasters, and pandemics. Celebration capitalism is a similar moment, a state of exception, whereby politicians and their buddies, their well-connected elites around the host city, push through a series of policies. However, they're not 
privatizing. They're not neoliberal policies. They're just like you said, they're lopsided public-private partnerships where the public pays and the private entities around tend to scoop up the profits. And when I was up in Vancouver during the Olympic moment in 2010, I interviewed numerous activists who are trying to raise questions around these dynamics. And one of them, a guy called Am Joe Hall, said to me, the Olympics are a corporate franchise that you buy with public money. And I think he got the spirit of celebration capitalism exactly right. In Vancouver, Canada, during the 2010 Olympics, many people were upset about what happened to the Olympic Village. After the Games, the tall towers that once housed athletes were turned into luxury condos. That then, the city struggled to sell. The development had been promoted as a way to boost the city, but wound up with a reputation for being a ghost town. The Olympic Village was always sort of promoted as a potentially a, a jewel of Vancouver's Olympic experience. It would be a new kind of housing, it would be green housing, it would be a new neighborhood in what had been before more of an industrial area. All good intentions, but the sums didn't add up, leaving Vancouver's taxpayers with a legacy of debt. It is a huge ripoff for everybody who lives in Vancouver, except for a handful of favored people that uh, are friends of the people in City Hall and will be getting nice places to live. And so you can go from city to city to Olympic City, and you can see celebration capitalism at work. You can see that certain swath of political and economic elites who are making money. So let's, let's be clear. There are certain people who make money off the Olympics, and those people tend to be a privileged sliver of the global 1%. It's not the everyday people of the Olympic City. The 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics were a disaster from the beginning, with expensive roads constructed and accommodations half-finished. It's no surprise what's happened to the town's Olympic venues. Just six months later, the area is a ghost town. The Beijing 2008 Summer Olympics put on an amazing spectacle, but now its parks are empty. This kayaking venue is now bone dry. It's like Montgomery Burns times 14 or something like that. <laughs> I'll keep it short and sweet. Family, religion, friendship. These are the three demons you must slay if you wish to succeed in business. In Rio de Janeiro, we see celebration capitalism in full throttle technicolor. Another great example of this is the golf course. So... Golf is making a return to the Olympics after a 112-year hiatus. And so what do they need? They need a golf course. Well, Rio already has two golf courses, as they trumpeted, by the way, in their Olympic bid back in 2009. Well, it turns out neither course is quite up to snuff for the golf fans. They could have converted one of the courses, but they say it would have cost just as much as building a new one. So they're building this new course. Well, they, where do they decide to site this new course? They site it over the edge of Matapendi Nature Reserve. So they make a huge slice into a nature reserve, for starters, okay? Second... The golf course is funded by a well-connected developer named Pascual Moro. As long as he puts up the money, about 20 to $30 million, to build the golf course and a series of 140 attached luxury condos, after the games are over, the government grants him the right to sell the condos at a steep profit. On what was, remember, 
land that was supposed to be a nature preserve. He's going to make millions and millions of dollars off this, okay? There's there's no doubt about it. Um, state of exception that you're talking about, the mayor of Rio, Eduardo Pais, he went in in the middle of the night and he, in, right before Christmas 2012, and he had the local laws changed so that his buddy Pascual Moro could build taller condos, thereby build more condos and thereby sell more condos and make more money. So this is kind of how it's working in Rio and it's pretty in-your-face egregious. This kind of wheeler-dealer situation is why there have been major protests against the Olympics since forever. Way back in the 1920s and 1930s, labor organizers staged a socialist alternative to the Olympic Games. They called it the Workers' Olympiads. Activists at the time saw popular sport as an important tool to demonstrate solidarity, with workers of every country standing shoulder to shoulder together against fascism. The Olympics presents itself as apolitical, an international coming together of kumbaya with no political differences. But that's totally false. It's always political. It has served over the years as a global platform for athletes to make a point, like runners John Carlos and Tommy Smith doing their iconic black power salute from the awards podium of the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. And in 1964, the Olympics banned South Africa from participating in the Games as a recognition of the inhumanity of apartheid. The ban remained in place until 1988. In more recent years, we've seen major protests against the Olympics. For example, right at the outset of the Vancouver Olympics, people were protesting the Games' arrival. And leading up to the Games in Beijing, there were protests around the world, including Tibetans who disrupted the Olympic torch relay in London. The torch's progress was punctuated with confrontation. Along the routes, there were people who'd come to support China and confronted with their Tibetan counterparts, there were ugly scenes. In Rio, some of the country's poorest people have been pushing back. But yeah, I mean, we've had tons of uh, really smart, creative activists fight back against the Olympics. We have this group in Rio called Comité Popular da Copa do Mundo e das Olimpíadas, which is popular committee for the World Cup and the Olympics. They got their start around the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And these are smart, seasoned activists who've been planning for this for a long time. I had the good fortune of sitting in on a number of their meetings when I was living in Rio, their weekly meetings I go to. And uh, they're just really impressive. They're smart. And they've been standing in solidarity with a lot of the people who've been affected by the Olympics. For example, there's a community just next to the Olympic Stadium they're building in Baja da Tijuca called Vila Todromo. And this is a favela that's been there since the 1960s. And people have been pushed out because of the Olympic Games. Residents here have been campaigning to stay for 20 years since local authorities first started complaining about what they called ecological and aesthetic problems. Now they say the land is on the Olympic site and in the path of a road that needs to be built here by 2016. Residents' associations say it's a pretext to force them out. People from the Comité Popular have been standing in solidarity, holding events with the people from Vila Autódromo. So that's just one group that's active in Brazil. In London, I was there also for the Olympics, and they took more of a sort of 
tell the truth but tell it slant, as Emily Dickinson might say, approach, where they brought humor to the game. There's this amazing group there that I, I followed and worked with called Space Hijackers, and they're just terrific. They're really creative. One of the things about the Olympics is there's this sort of incredibly intense brand micromanagement where corporate sponsors get pole position and they dominate the field. So McDonald's, you know, that health food that all athletes should be eating. McDonald's is a big corporate sponsor. And so as a result, in Olympic venues, only McDonald's French fries are allowed. McDonald's Olympic twist fries. Inspiration with a twist. Ah, this month only. Now in England... Huh chips are a big thing, right? You have your fish and chips. So you couldn't bring any chips. None of those British chips could enter. So space hijackers set up this catapult outside of Olympic venues where they're going to catapult chips into and over the fence into the Olympic areas, right? So this incredible creativity as a way of challenging some of these weird rules and laws that are put in place to host the Olympics. So, given that the Olympics is often used to screw over regular citizens in a lot of different ways, is a little bit weird that the nation still bands together to cheer it on? We've seen how the Olympics is used to justify rewriting laws to pour public money, our money, into big developments that make lots of profit for the Mr. Burns of the world. But people still get so excited about the Olympics. I get excited about the Olympics. Have you seen the videos of Simone Biles' gymnastics routine? She looks amazing! Amid all the spectacle and pomp and circumstance and consumerism of the Olympics, the athletes are the real deal. There's nothing wrong with being excited about humans who push themselves to do incredible things. People sometimes say that sports is like the new opiate of the masses. Kind of like religion was back in the day of Karl Marx. And so I don't buy that. I don't think that it's quite that simple that sport is the new opiate of the masses. And I actually went back and, and reread my Karl Marx from that time period. And when you look at what he has to say even about religion, he says that religion is the heart in a heartless world. So he's really not saying that religion is this total evil. He's saying it's the heart in a heartless world. And maybe in a way, sports can be that in our contemporary era as well. And I do believe that sport can really open up conversations you can have with people across the political spectrum. That's definitely been my experience. Now, before I started writing about the Olympics some, you know, seven years ago or so, I spent a decade of my life researching and writing about how the state and media squelch political dissent. And let me tell you, when I showed up at Thanksgiving and I want to talk politics, <laughs> I want to talk about, hey, did you hear about the American Indian Movement uncle, uh, who my right-wing uncle who didn't want to talk about the American Indian Movement, how they were being squelched, it went nowhere. You're like, hey, buddy, let's talk about drones. Also, pass the gravy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was very unsuccessful, my forays into politics with people with whom I differed politically, like my uncle, for example. Um, but with sports, it's totally different because it's an entry point for conversation and you can get to really interesting political spaces and you can get to really interesting political spaces of agreement with people. After all, there are a lot of people who are fiscal conservatives who find the spending on the Olympics absolutely abhorrent. And there are conservatives and liberals and progressives and everything between and outside of that 
who ha- will share the same favorite athlete. So I don't see why we need to forfeit the ground of sports and say, oh, it, we, we shouldn't be talking about that as people interested in politics or as intellectuals or as poets. No, I think all those people can appreciate sports and use it as a way of talking to people we might not otherwise get the chance to talk to. Jules Boykoff's book is called Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Check it out. Hey, listeners. If you like this show, help support it. We created a Beehive membership level just for you, the podcast Pollinators. Join fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators, and when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a monthly roundup of all our favorite shows and music reviews, straight to your inbox. Become a Pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Thank you so much. Journalist Jessica Luther grew up as a sports fan. I can't actually remember not being a fan of sports. When she was a kid, Jessica grew up with a single dad. He was in the Air Force. They moved a lot from Nebraska to Washington, D.C. to Florida. But wherever they were, Jessica's dad loved watching football with his little elementary school age daughter. I can remember just the two of us hanging out on the weekends. And there was one TV, of course, back in those days. And we watched football is what I mainly remember, but we probably watched other sports too. And I remember he was very, he still is very big on sportsmanship. And so like when the other team would get hurt, like my dad's very competitive with his teams, but like if someone on the other team got hurt, we had to, you know, respect that. And we wanted them to get better. And it's not worth it if other people get really injured and all those sorts of lessons that he was teaching me. Jessica carried that idea of sportsmanship close to her heart all of her life, but it led her to a place that she never could have predicted when she was a little kid watching TV. Now, as a journalist living in Austin, Texas, she just finished writing a book about college football and sexual assault. It's called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, college football, and the politics of rape. Just a warning about this segment, we're going to talk about sexual assault and how assaults are treated by media and college administrators, but we're not going to talk about any graphic details of specific cases. As a kid, there was no bigger team in Jessica's life than the Florida State University Seminoles. That was her dad's favorite team. He'd gone to Florida State, and it became important to Jessica, too. We have our, our famous, our infamous chants that are racist. <laughs> Channeling of whoever made the chants up, their image of what Native Americans sound like. Graduating from high school in 1998, she chose to attend Florida State University, too. It was the only school I applied to when it finally came time. And I was a very good student in high school and had all these dreams of what I was going to do. And I at some point decided like that was the only school I was going to go to. And 
Jessica fell in love with Florida State, and football was a big part of that. I mean, I just loved it. I could feel, it felt collegiate to me. Um, It was what I was hoping college would feel like. I loved all the game day stuff. I loved all the sports stuff. I literally went to every single football game. Florida State is in the capital of Florida, Tallahassee. And at times, it can feel like the whole city revolves around football. It's not just a game. It's the center of civic life and culture. The entire town sort of shuts down. You can't get into a restaurant. Uh, You know, people book hotels months in advance, if not a year in advance, in order to be able to go to a game and have a place to stay. Uh, There are just people everywhere. Um, And they're all decked out in their gear. Everyone's really excited. There's just like lots of random cheering that happens. It's like a massive party atmosphere and it's fun and you're part of it and you feel uh, this. I mean, I get why people have part of their identity is, is attached to that school and that team and that camaraderie that comes from being a part of that. Um, It's just so exciting to cheer along with other people for the same team when you all care so deeply for what's happening on the field. So when I was there, uh, Florida State actually went to the national championship game and they played against Michael Vick's Virginia Tech Hokies at the New Orleans Sugar Bowl, and I got tickets. And we went to the game, and one of the sort of big, the big storyline of outside of that game was that our um, star player, uh, Peter Warwick, had been arrested for a felony robbery during that semester and had sort of gotten a slap on the wrist in the way that you would expect and was out on the field. and. I just remember believing very soundly that, like, he should be out there. Why wouldn't he be out there? The only thing that matters is if we win this game. And I believed that. A lot of people feel that way, that whatever an athlete does off the field doesn't matter, that winning is the only thing. But after Jessica graduated and became a journalist, something changed. In the summer of 2013, she noticed that two major football teams, the teams from Vanderbilt and the Naval Academy, had gang rape cases going on at the same time. It struck her as very strange and unsettling that not very many people were talking about the cases. I just remember at the time being so so fascinated that sports media didn't care at all. Like they were much more obsessed with whether or not this other quarterback in college, Johnny Manziel, had signed an autograph and got paid for it and therefore broken rules about getting paid as an amateur player. And I just... There was such a cognitive dissonance for me with like, how could they not care that two different major football programs have ongoing gang rape cases? And it's like, it was like crickets. Then in November 2013, the news broke that Florida State University's new star quarterback had been accused of sexual assault. His name is Jameis Winston. It turned out that a female Florida State student had reported the crime more than a year before, in December 2012. It took a year for the case to become public. This was part of a pattern. Florida State's Victim Advocate Office had 113 sexual assault reports in 2014, yet FSU's administration reported only 14 of them to the federal government. The student in Winston's case filed a lawsuit 
that states that Florida State University, quote, in concert with the Tallahassee police, took steps to ensure that Winston's alleged rape of the plaintiff would not be investigated either by the university or law enforcement, end quote. The university settled the case for $950,000. Winston, meanwhile, was never prosecuted for any crime. He was a first-round draft pick for the NFL and is currently making $6.3 million a year as a quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The student who brought up the assault charges, she wound up transferring. Jessica Luther says that when she first heard the news about this case, she was sad. There's no other word for it. Just sad. It's so it's almost hard to explain like the sadness of, you know, you have this joy in your life and just suddenly being like, oh, man, this is not what I thought it was. Um, I mean, I remember Winston was young. He was a redshirt freshman and he had just come out of nowhere. We had been as a team really flailing for a long while And all these pieces came together. We finally had a very good offensive line, which had been lacking for a long time. And then they put a quarterback behind it. And he was so good. And it was so exciting. And by the time November rolled around, I mean, there was, you know, whispers that he was going to win the Heisman Trophy, which is the top award in college football. Hearing Uh, about the rape allegations against Winston entirely changed how Jessica saw him and the team. But I can remember being very sad about it. I didn't, I just didn't want it to be my team. And it's, it's weird to talk about it now because I have definitely had a huge evolution <laughs> in my own thinking around this issue since then. But I recognize the fans who get really angry about reporters writing about this and that feeling of why are you focusing on my school and everybody's terrible and not just us and all these sort of feelings you have. Um, Because, I mean, for me, I I instantly recognized that I was going to have to somehow reconcile this for myself, that this wasn't okay. And then the more I learned about the case, the less okay (laughs) I became about all of it. Um, It's a really messy, terrible case of people just sort of looking the other way and not trying very hard to figure out what actually had happened. I did jump in pretty quickly. I was upset about the coverage. I was upset about how much of it was about him and where there was very little even sort of a mention of a woman involved. Um, And that's part of how I started writing on it was I wanted to correct that narrative as much as I could and say that that's not okay. That's not how we should cover this. Can you spell out like Lay out concretely what was wrong with some of the reporting initially on this that, that made you upset. You said it was so focused on him and and didn't talk about the woman involved at all. Just concretely explain, like, what did you see that you were like, mm, that's not the way we should be talking about rape allegations? Yeah, I think this will be probably familiar to mo- anyone who has watched sports media cover any of these kind of cases. What ends up happening and And it's not a surprise. So the way sports works is that we as journalists are trained to write about the athletes and the stories around teams. And and when suddenly this kind of out, you know, this off field issue happens and there's a possible victim involved, sports media doesn't really know what to do with that. Like they're so trained to write about things from the perspective of athletes that they continue to do it. So you get this sort of like, what is the impact on Jameis Winston? Will he still be good at football? And that was like, 
too much for me. This idea of what impact would this have on his ability to play football when they, you know, there were pieces that would barely even mention outside of saying someone had reported or accused him. And so what happened was in November, it comes out there was very good investigative journalism that happened at the Tampa Bay Times and uh, Matt Baker at the Tampa Bay Times. And he got some sort of tip. He figured out that this assault was on the investigation to the assault was ongoing since December 2012. When he puts in the request to Tallahassee Police Department in November 2013, it sort of breaks open. I think TMZ might have beaten him by like an hour or something. And so we come to find out that the police had never forwarded the file to the state's attorney's office. So the state's attorney immediately takes over and then they do their own investigation almost a year later. And right before the Heisman, uh, the state's attorney came out, did a weird press conference where he announced that Jameis Winston would not be charged um, a lot because it's hard to collect evidence for something like this 11 months later. Uh, And this guy... Greg Doyle for CBS Sports at the time, he doesn't write for them anymore. He wrote this piece that's very typical. I mean, I'm saying his name, but like this is just a very typical sort of response. Um, And he's like, okay, time to move on. Everything's done here. Legal thing is over. Nothing Nothing to see. And I can remember at the time being mad about that. Like, well, there's still a woman, right? Like, is is she done? (laughs) Like, is it like she moved on? Have we all just moved on? I, I do not like how sports media is ready to just move back to the field. Like, it's all done now. And it, it isn't, it's not done. There are still bigger questions that need to be asked, and we need to remember that these kind of cases don't just end. Sports media talks a lot more about plays and the game than real-life crime and behavior of athletes, especially when that behavior gets into actions that are not cool and scandalous and cool headline fodder but are really depressing and dark and scary. So something will happen on field, right? Like there'll be some kind of bad foul and everyone will argue about whether or not that person should be punished extra because they did this horrible foul. And there'll be like these giant conversations about it. And then another player on the team will do this horrible thing off field. Like no one wants to talk about it. And I always think that's so interesting because of course it's easier for all of us to have a discussion about this foul and the punishment for it because it doesn't really mean anything outside of the field. Like we don't have to have big philosophical discussions about our relationship to that foul and that punishment or something like that. Whereas when something happens like sexual assault or domestic violence or even, you know, talking about players with mental health issues or any kind of big thing that sort of radiates out into life, you know, it really pulls you away from the sport itself and it makes you really look at things that are important and big and difficult to have conversations about. And I think a lot of people, I do this, I turn to sport because it's simple. There are rules, people follow them. They don't follow them, then something happens. You know, and that those things start to fall apart for you when you have to interrogate these off-field issues that intersect with other things in your life. I really do get why people don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore a lot of the time, but um, I also can't forget about it. And I, now that I've done this for so long, you know, for me, I think about all these women who've contacted me about, you know, things that have happened to them and 
those are the kind of things I can't put aside when I'm watching sport anymore. I just can't not think about it anymore. Um, you know, it's kind of ignorance is bliss, right? Um, and I can't go back from what I know. So, so you have lots of women contact you and say, hey, this has happened to me or this has happened at my school. Yeah. Anytime I publish a big story, and especially if I end up on national television, like uh, outside the lines on ESPN, um, there's always a response where people contact me. And it's not necessarily people who want me to report on them. They just want to tell me because they think I get it um, and I will be a safe ear for them. And that's so rare. Yeah, I think so. I think people see me and they think, well, if I tell her, she'll believe me and she'll get what I'm talking about. It's not just sports media that wants to move on. It's university administrators, too. I'm hoping you can talk about what role does money play in this? How much of this has to do with football teams, especially being money makers for big colleges? I think it's huge. I mean, it's often true at big schools with big football teams that the head coach of the football team makes more money than anybody else on campus. Um, And so therefore they end up being the de facto most powerful person on campus. Uh, The the football team brings in a bunch of money uh, often. It's often the sort of financial machine of the athletic department, if not, you know, a big chunk of the university, it makes boosters happy, um, you know, alumni who want to give money. And so, yeah, and these players are not paid, right? So this is this is a big thing for me in the in the book. As I return to this, I, you know, this sort of, these guys aren't getting paid for any of this. So you get things like when they're recruiting them, they can't pay them. They're not you know, negotiating salaries or something like that. Uh, Instead, what you often see is they try to build bigger facilities, better facilities. And then for me, the sort of the dark side of this is they often use women as recruitment, right? They're like these women almost stand in as cash. Um, We can't offer you money, but we have really pretty girls here who will do very nice things for you if you come. It's the implicit promise of these recruitment programs, which I see that as a spectrum. The other end is, you know, sexual assault. This idea that these women just exist um, for these guys' pleasure is part of recruitment. Schools often throw big parties full of attractive female students when they're recruiting male athletes. These students are called hostesses. Since there are strict rules about coaches not spending more than a few minutes with a potential student when they come to tour campus, athletic departments support groups of female students who give tours, answer questions, and are supposed to keep the recruits entertained. There have been a lot of cases where women volunteering as hostesses have come forward about being sexually assaulted. There's so much money that is being thrown around. And so, yeah, if they get hurt or if they get in trouble, uh, there are things in place to get them better and back on the field as soon as possible because they are the ones making the money. Like Jameis Winston at Florida State, not being the idea that he might not have been able to play because he got in trouble. I mean, that we're talking about like a team that was on its way to, and it did win the national championship behind the sky and the kind of like money that that brings in, you get like more people apply to schools when teams win national championships, boosters donate money. Uh, it's this whole thing. And, and then it, 
it, it, it itself creates this whole, like, when Jameis Winston wins the national championship at Florida State, a big-time recruit will come play for them so that they can recreate the cycle. So they've invested a bunch of money in these guys. They need them to stay clean. They need them to stay on the field. And it's just a really bad system that is driven by gigantic, uh, gigantic funds. A big problem with the system is that the schools are at odds with themselves. The school has a strong financial disincentive to investigate rape allegations if they might wind up keeping a player off the field. But schools are not just supposed to be concerned about making money. They're supposed to protect all of their students, not just the ones who are football stars. When schools overlook sexual assault, it's students who have already faced violence who pay the price. There's a real tendency among feminist pop culture critics, well, I'm talking about me here, to dismiss sports entirely. If you grew up preferring books to basketballs, there's a real desire to just want to write off sports entirely as the realm of jocks. But that's unfair. And also, it's untrue. Even for those of us who will never, ever run a mile under 10 minutes, it's important to engage with sports like we do with other pop culture and then analyze it like we do other parts of our economy. Athletes can be role models that lots of people look up to, whether at the Olympics or on the college football field or on the soccer pitch. People are watching. And that's why sports and political activism really go hand in hand. Team owners and colleges and Olympic committee members can swear up and down that sports are apolitical, but they're not. Even mundane stuff like athletes' contracts and the location for constructing a new stadium reveal our values and they reveal what the people in charge think they can get away with. When women's soccer players push for better pay, or when college administrators actually take sexual assault seriously, or when people turn out to protest the Olympic torch relay, that all sends a message about the rules we want people to uphold and live by off the field. Listeners of the Bitch Media Podcast care about society and our future. And so does Oregon State University. Today's workplace requires employees who think creatively and dig for the unique insights that drive change. Explore your passion with the skills that allow you to be a leader in political science. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash political. This show wouldn't exist without you, the listeners. We want to share this podcast far and wide, so share it with your friends. Post a link to this episode on your Facebook or on your Twitter. 
and leave a review of the show on iTunes. It really, really helps new people find the show. Here's our listener comment of the week, which comes from listener Jenny. She wrote in to say, Hey, just reaching out to let you all know how much I enjoy reading and listening to what you have to offer. I'm a regular podcast listener who is waiting ever so patiently for July to be over so I can get my next fix. Guess what, Jenny? July is over. We are back. And here's a plug for our next episode of Propaganda, which will be called Designing for Democracy. I don't know who created Pokemon Go. But I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. That show comes out in two weeks. See you then. The band featured in between segments on this episode is Diaspora. She's a South Asian queer femme musician and community organizer from Charleston, South Carolina. Her new album is called Demonstrations. Look her up. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.